Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. It's in joy and in hope that we gather this morning. While every Lord's Day is to be a celebration of the resurrection hope that we have in the Lord Jesus, there is something about the celebration of Easter that brings out in us the joy of the hope that we have in Christ. Now there are many reasons for this, I'm sure. Some years when we celebrate Easter, not this one most certainly, we have the feeling of new life that comes from the bright color of springs. As I said, we don't have that joy this year. But that usually is a feeling that we have. The idea of spring bringing forth new life. Now maybe it's the fact that we are finally making our way out of our homes after being, well, in a state of partial hibernation for all these months in the Minnesota winter. Maybe that is the reason that we have extra joy on Easter. But I was thinking about the story of Easter, the story of the resurrection, and I decided to sort of not only look at what we had in the Gospel of John this morning, but look at the other resurrection accounts, and I was contemplating what they all had to say, what they all meant, how they told the story. But as I started doing this, I realized that the key to understanding the joy of the resurrection and to understand the hope of the resurrection, we have to go further back in the story, don't we? At first, I I just went back as far as the obvious part of the story that precedes the resurrection. We know that part of the story, of course. We consider the story of the crucifixion and, and the death of Jesus on Good Friday. And so now it is obvious why we have joy on Sunday morning. We also think back to Thursday with our remembrance of the institution of the Lord's Supper on Thursday. We considered the Last Supper and what that was to commemorate. All of this together, the Last Supper, Good Friday, it sort of leaves us in a state of hopelessness, does it not? Of course, we know the story. We know Easter's coming. That's, that's a natural thing. We know that. But when we celebrate, when we remember the institution of the Lord's Supper, when we consider Good Friday we understand that there's an extreme gravity to what we remember on those days. But now, instead of coming here in a place of despair, we proclaim that he is risen. And we have the despondency and the misery of the cross replaced with the hope of the empty tomb. But then, my thoughts went beyond the accounts of the resurrection and the accounts of the resurrection, You know, thoughts keep going, as thoughts tend to do, and I thought back through the whole story of the Bible, and I made my way all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the fall. The feelings of sorrow and discouragement that we have ultimately go all the way back to the garden, do they not? The specter of death is over the entire story. Of course, as as we have seen so many times in our time in Scripture together, there's always hope 
in these stories in the Old Testament. It's always pointing to the fact that God is going to do something more. But when we stop, when we think about every story that we know from the Old Testament, they always end with a curse hanging over it. Even though we trust in the hope that God brings, it seems as though death is actually the one who has the upper hand as we read the Old Testament stories. Yes, it's pointing to something greater. But when we think about the stories, doesn't it seem as though death is winning? As inspiring as the story of Abraham is, how does it end? With his death. Jacob grew in faith. He grew to trust the Lord. But his story ends at the end of Genesis, with him on the verge of dying, and what does he ask? That his bones will be transported to the land of his people. And we can think about another story, another character from the Old Testament, another person who points us forward to Christ. David, he is a great king. And as I said, he is a type, pointing us forward to the Messiah. But like the rest of humanity, David breathes his last. This is the story of humanity. We come to the end of our days, and what do we hope for? We, we hope for a good long life with loved ones who will carry on our legacy. But what do we know? We know that ultimately, every one of us will breathe our last. Every one of us will have the end of our life. Death comes for us. Now, people have written about this desperate situation throughout the ages in many different forums. Philosophy, poetry, songs, all these attempted solutions, all the ways to try and deal with this problem are too numerous to count. Some religions teach that the suffering that we endure and the death that we will experience is simply an illusion. And you need to work past that and strive to ascend to a higher plane where you are now not having to worry about this illusion of pain, suffering, and death. Then others offer consolation in the hope of a spiritual, ethereal existence somewhere in the beyond somewhere. In all the attempts at insights into how to deal with this problem of death, one thing doesn't change when you look at all of this. Death is ultimately the victor. Death has the final word. It's just something you got to deal with. That is, until you come face to face with the Christian story and the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Suddenly, we find the true answer to the ultimate woe of humanity. And that answer is the one who has the final word. That answer is the one who is victorious over death. Instead of conceding to death, Christ wins victory, not only for himself, but as our covenant head, he is victorious over death for his people. That is the ultimate story of hope. And it not only wipes away the despair that comes from the story of the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus, but it also decimates the despair that the curse has brought on all of humanity. And so we gather today, not just to celebrate the joy that comes from Jesus rising from the dead, 
but from the truth that every person that he has brought to himself will have that same victory over death. Death not only does not have the last word for Jesus, death also does not have the last word for us. And if ever there was a reason for joy, this truth is it. Thanks be to God for this gift. Death does not have the last word. The gospel is the last word. And that gospel is a word from God that brings the people of God hope. And so we come to our scripture passages this morning and we dwell upon this hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to be considering the ramifications and the extent of the resurrection of Jesus today by looking at both our Old Testament and New Testament passage. And as we do this, I want us to have three points that we come away from today. The first thing that we're going to take a look at and that I want to draw out is the unexpected nature of the resurrection. As I mentioned, as I opened up, the curse comes for us all, and it is final. Not only is the resurrection unexpected for ordinary folks like you and I, but clearly the resurrection wasn't even on the radar for the disciples and the close friends of Jesus. Secondly, today we're going to see that the tomb is empty. Now, this is a pretty obvious point, but it's important that we stop and we consider the objections to the story of the resurrection and think through them as we embrace the truth of the resurrection story and consider the result of this for us as the people of God. And finally, we find the clear truth that the resurrection was a bodily resurrection. Now, if the tomb is empty, obviously, the resurrection is a bodily resurrection. But this is an important detail that we need to understand if we want to understand the significance of the event of the resurrection that we remember and celebrate today. And so we dig into the unexpected nature of the resurrection as we look at our first point today. And we find this unexpected nature of this all in the activity of Mary as the passage starts, right? She's headed for the tomb of Jesus. Now she is a good Jewish lady. She took the Sabbath off on Saturday. Now she's headed to where they've placed the body of Jesus. Little does she know that not only is this the most pivotal day in the history of humanity, but she doesn't even know that she's a part of anything other than the sorrow she is experiencing. All the people who went to the tomb, Mary, the other woman, and the disciples, they go to the garden of Joseph of Arimathea, not because they're going to celebrate the resurrection of their Lord and to inaugurate a new economy for all of human history. That's not why they're headed there. They're headed there to do what people normally do in a time of loss. They are a people who are grieving the loss of their loved one. They are doing what every other person who has loved, lost a loved one does. And they feel that same sense of despair and hopelessness and loss. And we, you and I, can understand the gloom with which she approaches the garden tomb. Because none of us are immune from the sting of the curse. We've all been in a line of cars following a funeral coach and had to leave the body of a loved one to be placed in the ground. 
regardless of how much hope has been offered to us in a funeral service. That feeling of leaving the cemetery is one of loss and one of anguish. And that's how Mary felt that Sunday morning. And then she arrives at the tomb in the morning, and the stone is missing. And there's more indication for us that she did not expect the resurrection. Because she goes to Peter and John and tells them, Jesus is gone. No one is expecting resurrection because it's unexpected. And even when the tomb is empty, notice what Mary has to say about all this. This reinforces her not expecting resurrection. Naturally, Mary assumes that someone took Jesus and they've laid him somewhere else. And as we consider the ramifications of Easter, it's important that we remember what Mary thinks has happened as we move on to our second point here and we consider that the tomb is empty. Now, as I mentioned while I was lining out the points, this is a no-brainer of a point here. Of course the tomb is empty. But it's important to consider the tomb is empty. The body of Jesus is gone. Jesus is not there. And when Mary arrives and when Peter and John arrive, They wonder where he is. Mary specifically assumes somebody has moved the body. Now, throughout history, there have been many attempts to explain why the tomb is empty, other than the truth of the resurrection. One excuse given is that the disciples stole the body, and they crafted a great big ruse to convince people that Jesus had rose from the dead. Now, there are several issues with this idea. First, The accounts of the gospel give us an indication that the disciples didn't understand that Jesus needed to suffer and die and rise again. If they were building this whole thing out of whole cloth, would they make themselves out to be the dolts that they are in the gospels? I mean, seriously, if you were Peter giving an account of the story of Jesus to Mark to write down the story, would you make yourself look as bad as Peter looks in the gospel of Mark? You would not. You'd make yourselves look good. If you're making all of this up, we would have the disciples going to the garden expecting the tomb to be empty because they had faith in the words of their Lord. And so now you should have faith in the words of the disciples as well. They believe Jesus. You should believe Jesus. This is what the plan was all along. There's a resurrection. That's likely how the story would go if they stole the body and they made it up. Well, and there's another strike against this idea that the disciples took the body and made it all up, and this is the most important one. We have to remember the fact that the majority of the disciples were martyred for their proclamation of Jesus being resurrected. Are we really expected to believe that they stole the body and made up the story about the resurrection, and then under torture and threat of death, They refuse to admit that they made up this story. If anybody knows that this is a hoax, it's the guys that are being tortured. They would give it up in a second. They know whether or not the story is true. Yet they were imprisoned. They were martyred. And they did not disavow the truth of the resurrection. And then there's another attempt to explain away the truth of the resurrection. And it's this idea that Jesus didn't actually die. He was just badly injured and almost dead. And then in the garden tomb, it was nice and cool in there. 
He got to feeling better, and he walked out of the grave then on his own accord. Well, this is patently absurd on many, many levels. First, Jesus was executed by the most awful form of punishment in human history. Hanging on the cross after being bruised and battered, he would have been unable to hold himself up. He would have suffocated to death. And while you and I like to assume that we're smarter and more informed than anyone who has ever lived, they did know when someone was dead back then, believe it or not. They could figure it out. Not only that, but the account of Jesus and his death includes them putting a sword in his side and blood and water flowing out. Jesus was dead. And on top of it all, let's think about the ones who were overseeing this execution. They were experts at it. They knew when people were dead. The Roman soldiers are not taking their chances with what would have been done to them if they allowed a rabbi from Galilee to come off a cross without being dead. They were experts, and the ramifications for them, if Jesus was alive, were not good. Jesus was dead that Friday afternoon, and his lifeless corpse was placed in the tomb, period. But now the tomb is empty. And this has ramifications for you and I. If the tomb is empty, we have to deal with it. It not only means that a man was resurrected from the dead on the third day, it also confirms beyond a doubt who Jesus is. Now notice, I didn't say who Jesus was. Who Jesus is. The empty tomb confirms that he is God. And so when he speaks... We should not only listen, but we should believe and obey. The empty tomb not only establishes the authority that Jesus has over our lives and over all of creation, but for us, it means that we have the sure and certain hope of eternal life and the resurrection of our bodies, which is what we will be considering as we move on to our third and final point as we discuss the fact that Jesus rose bodily from the grave. Now, This follows naturally from our point about the tomb being empty. But once again, there are those who teach falsely against the Christian faith, and they assert that the resurrection that the disciples were talking about was not an actual resurrection, but a physical, a spirit, or not an actual physical resurrection, but a spiritual resurrection. They assert that when the disciples talked about the resurrection in the New Testament, they really meant that Jesus didn't rise bodily. He simply was resurrected spiritually. But the tomb is empty. And Mary is able to touch Jesus. And in just a few verses on in the Gospel of John, Jesus eats fish. He breathes on his disciples. He challenges Thomas to touch him. The bodily resurrection of Jesus is vital to our understanding of the faith. And we know this. We know this well. Stop for a moment and think about what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. We confess the resurrection of the body. We do not confess the eternality of the soul. We confess the resurrection of the body. We believe that at the end of history... When Jesus delivers his kingdom to his Father, we all will rise. And this is important for you and I because, once again, we don't want to have a God 
who was held in bondage by death. If Jesus did not rise bodily, death has the final word. And then Jesus is not victorious over the grave. If Jesus did not rise bodily, then all of creation will not be restored at the end of history. But Jesus did rise from the dead, and so we know that he has victory. We will rise. Your loved ones who have gone before and in the presence of God, they are awaiting the final resurrection and the final victory that Christ has won over sin, death, hell, and the devil. And this is unbelievably good news for you and I. Because we know what the purpose of the cross was. It was for the Messiah to bear the wrath of God in our very own flesh. Imagine if the story was that God the Son took on our human flesh and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Romans executed him and he stayed dead and only rose spiritually to ascend to a higher plane. What confidence could we have in a Savior who could not defeat the bonds of death? How could we possibly have assurance that our sins are forgiven if we are trusting in a God so weak that he could not come back to life and instead rotted in the grave until he returned to dust? But we do not serve a Savior who could be held by death. And so we have hope. And this hope is proclaimed by Job who had faith that he served a God who would raise him bodily as well. Here we see Job looking forward, and he understands that his Redeemer lives, and that he will stand upon the earth. But his hope is not just that the Redeemer will stand. Notice what Job says. After my skin has been destroyed in my flesh, I shall see God. I don't know about you, but I have no desire no desire at all to serve a God who cannot restore me after my skin has been destroyed. There is nothing to worship about a God who can be defeated by death. There's nothing to adore in a God who would have the power to create heaven and earth, but would not raise his people on the last day. What kind of a savior would Jesus be if he could take on God's wrath for my sin and yours? but he could only be raised spiritually. But we know that our Redeemer does in fact live. He has been raised bodily from the grave after lying in the tomb. It was unexpected, but it is the good news that we need. My friends, this is the gospel. That God in Christ, through the death, resurrection, and ascension, has in Christ reconciled us to himself. Not by waving his hand and saying, hey, I know you sinned, but we're good now. That's not what happened. That's not how we were reconciled to God. Instead, he left the glory of heaven to take on our flesh in this fallen world and to suffer for our sake and to be our substitutes and to rise again to defeat death. This is the gospel, and it is true. And it takes care of the two biggest problems that you and I have. That we are sinners, and that we're going to die. Death has been vanquished. 
And because of this, sorrow has been banished. And so has our sin. And so the consequence of this truth and our application for our lives as we step from here into the world is that in the truth of the resurrection, in the truth of our forgiveness of sins and the salvation that we have in Christ, we are called to walk in newness of life. The call on our lives is to serve God and to seek Him in holiness. And we do this not because we are hoping to score points with God and get on His good side, but because He is the Lord of heaven and earth and He has won victory over death for us. He has rescued us from sin and death. And so we are called to turn from our sin and follow Him in obedience. As we face the temptations of this world, may this glorious truth and all of the resurrection and all that He has done for us cause you and I to turn from sin and serve Him in joy, knowing that Jesus has in fact given us hope. The resurrection was unexpected. The tomb was empty. He rose bodily. He is risen indeed. And so may you and I rise from here today. May we walk in newness of life and love and serve our crucified and risen Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.